2: Hey, Titans fans. Tuesday the 24th, we're going to be doing a live mock draft on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be picking for every team with details on every pick as we try to find who the Titans should take with the 25th selection. Again, that's Tuesday the 24th, 7 p.m. Central Time, Blog Talk Radio. Mm
0: Welcome into the Titan Size Podcast, I'm Luke Worsham, joined by the other two hosts of the Titan Size Podcast, Matthias Wadner and Will Lomas. As you just heard, we will be going live on Tuesday for a full first-round mock draft, 7 p.m. on Blog Talk Radio, which may be where you're listening right now. Uh, If not, we still thank you for listening, nonetheless. And we're very excited because today is going to be the last episode of our pre-draft coverage aside from the mock draft, And we are joined by um, probably our favorite uh, draft analyst today, and that's Jim Coburn. Um, He does YouTube videos. uh, Common Man Football is the name of his YouTube channel. He puts out a draft guide every year. You can find his guide on Amazon. um, And he's very active on Twitter. And the reason that we like Jim so much is because he takes kind of a no nonsense approach to scouting. You'll see a lot of people try to tell you about no, this guy has this trait, and, you know, because he's fast, he's not a good football player, but he might become one someday, you know, whatever, all that stuff. Jim, I think you would probably agree with this. You take sort of a no-nonsense approach to scouting because of how analytically you do approach it. Would you agree with that?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, as as my girlfriend would say, I, I, I do get a little brutally honest <laughs> at times uh, with <laughs> – with a lot of things in general but mainly data because a lot of what data does is it just shows you that the draft as much as we like to as le- as much as we would like to think that every single draft pick is going to work out or that every single player that gets taken in the top 10 is going to go on to become a hall of famer based on the data that is not always the case you know you're talking about when we say generational prospects we're literally meaning generational prospects and a lot of times data just clearly, clues you into the the inconvenient truth that not every single NFL player or NFL prospect, for that matter, is going to go on to become what you think he is. And a lot of times uh, what data does is it kind of either tempers your expectations on a guy or clues you into a couple tra- traits here and there that might work out long term. But that's that's really what data does. And In many ways, as I tell most people, film tells you every single re- reason why a player is going to succeed. That's what film does. Well, data tells you every single reason why they're going to fail. Hmm. And that's also why data a lot of times is not the most popular thing because people don't like to know failure. They don't like to think about failure. Um, but in, in many ways, I feel a data slash film approach helps you because you get to watch the film on a guy, obviously, to see all the reasons why they succeed. And in many ways, when you get to the data, you're you're embracing failure. You know, you're you're basically beefing up your arguments, beefing up uh, your scouting ability, getting you know getting you to go back and watch film on on players in the past because I think there there's not enough of that to be honest um, you know going back and actually looking at game tape of um, players in the past and looking at the traits that they had to see if some of those would translate to you know players now but um, but that's the basics about just data in general or at least my approach is I would say brutally honest is probably um, the best. way to explain it and you know i'm not always the most popular guy because of that approach but at the same time i just feel that i mean i'm not lying i mean a lot a lot of again all my stuff is backed up by the data that i present so Mm -hmm. i'm just basically giving you um some little truth nuggets here and there about certain prospects and what their chances are in terms of nfl success uh
0: we're going to talk a lot about uh Positions of need for the Titans and directions they could look in the first and second and even third rounds. Uh, But before we hop into that, I want to talk a little bit about a position that we know the Titans probably will not touch, and that's the quarterback position because they obviously have their franchise quarterback. Um, More so than really in any past year, there is a lot of ongoing debate as to, number one, who the top quarterback is in this draft, and also, number two, who comes after him. Even if you didn't know that Jared Goff was going to be taken before Carson Wentz, you knew that Carson Wentz was the next man up. Even if you didn't know whether Winston or Mariota was going to go first, you knew that Mariota was going to be the next man up. However, this year, even if you even if you know for fact that Sam Darnold is going first overall, you have no idea which of the other guys is going to come next. And so, I want you to kind of talk us through the the big guys at the position: Darnold, Allen, Rosen uh Lamar Jackson uh I may have missed a name a big one Baker Mayfield even um and just kind of take us through how those guys look from an analytics perspective because I was talking to Willa Matias about this the other day when it comes to the quarterback position my questions are uh, can you throw an accurate football can you move within the pocket can you process plays mentally and are you going to make your teammates hate you and if you can check all those boxes, I'm fine. I don't care about one guy has a cannon for an arm and one guy maybe has a, a smaller arm. So, kind of talk us through the quarterbacks in this year's draft from your perspective.
1: Uh, sure. Well, I think in this particular draft class, the, the when it comes to quarterbacks, it's it's pretty strong from a data perspective. Uh, you, you know, when you look at A lot of the the data work that I do looks at college production, obviously, FBS production, looks at high school production, just to give you an idea of development from the high school level to the college level, uh, which has a pretty large sample size as well. At least the, the high school production goes back to the 2007 NFL draft class, and the college production goes all the way back to 1958. But in this class, there's a lot of really good quarterbacks. If you're talking about the best testing quarterback from a data perspective, um, it's definitely Baker Mayfield. Um, he's the one that had the – at least he had a 93-plus uh, career production score. Uh, the average All-Pro score is about 87, around that range. So, again, he's above what the average score is for an All-Pro player, uh, pretty much above what the average score is for a Pro Bowl player. And, you know, he's just the guy that has all – he checks all the boxes. He's been really consistent. He's has the most experience in his career, obviously, as well. You know, a guy that had three 90-plus – you know, seasons in terms of his, you know, production score at the FBS level. Um, And, yeah, there is some stuff with him, obviously. You know, he's kind of a – he's shorter. But based on all the data work I've done, the height that quarterback doesn't seem to be as big of a deal as a lot of people make it out to be. Um, Some of that is just because NFL teams don't really give guys that are short a chance. So it kind of helps the guys who do succeed. But um, either way you look at it, Baker Mayfield is just the the most – uh, you know, he's a, he's a guy, if you just based everything off data, he would be the top quarterback. And then you get with Sam Darnold, USC, um, who has a very good uh, career production score as well. Pretty much hit the All-Pro, uh, above the average All-Pro score, which is about 80, 89 was what his score was. And he's a guy that honestly has the most upside. Um, only upside because he had the best single-season college production score out of all the quarterbacks back in 2000. 2016, he was the best quarterback in the nation in terms of his uh, his uh, college production score. And then 2017 had a dip, obviously, uh, in his production, which is what everybody focuses on. But it wasn't really that big of a dip. I know a lot of people kind of equate it to. It's like with Deshaun Watson last year where people were saying, oh, Deshaun Watson just is all these turnovers, man. And, and yeah, he definitely did have a tick up in terms of his interceptions, but it wasn't as big big of a thing as people kind of make it out to be and sure Deshaun Watson's career still has a lot to say you know in terms of like what his long-term potential is going to be but I just feel like Darnold is is nitpicked a little bit just because of that and he also has a highest upside just because he's one of the younger quarterbacks in the class too you know this is a guy that is entering the class at 21 years old you know so there's still a lot of development there uh, uh, per se and most 21 year old quarterbacks suck by the way if you actually look at the data going back to the 60s uh, rookie quarterbacks that are 21, 22, not a lot of successful outcomes there. So Darnold's is just a guy that from an upside perspective, he may not be that great uh, you know, as a 21-year-old rookie to 22-year-old, but he's a guy that at least you hope in that third year he takes that jump, you know, basically has that sort of jump in that third year of his career, kind of like a Matthew Stafford or that type of guy. And then the third guy, of course, is Josh Rosen. Uh, very good uh, production. The only issue with him – is he didn't quite hit above the average score for all pro players in terms of his career production, uh, which again the average was about eighty-seven. He was around, uh, I think it was seventy-eight. Is kind of where he was at. Uh, and but other than that, though, he pretty much hits every sort of indicator for a Pro Bowl quarterback. Uh, you know, whether you're talking about just his best single season performances at the high score college level, uh, his career performances. So he's like the Third guy, and, and the other thing too is he could be the best amongst a bunch because there, there definitely is a chance that even though Baker Mayfield tests as well as he does, he ends up not being that great. There's definitely, uh, I think, based on all the data work I've done, guys that pass the thresholds. There's about a 50 percent, you know, bust boom, you know, success rate with a lot of guys that pass the uh, the filters. So there definitely is that to kind of think about as well. It's not a perfect system of evaluation, but it's just giving an idea of like potential outcomes. And then, of course, you have Mason Rudolph, who is, I'm not going to say he slept on, but he's another guy that kind of gets a lot of flack because of uh, you know, whatever reason. And I definitely think he's, he's not a perfect prospect by any stretch of the imagination, but he is a guy that put up a lot of indicators very similar to Josh Rosen um, in terms of just his high school production, his college production, and he's a guy that could go on to become a long-term starter or, or maybe a little bit better um, depending on the situation he falls to. And then you have every other quarterback in the class. Uh, You have guys like Luke Falk, who honestly has very good college production, but does have a couple things from a high school production standpoint that are a little iffy and maybe becomes a long-term starter, maybe doesn't. Uh, you got guys like JT Barrett, who great college production, obviously, but his high school production, you put up like a 7 out of 100 in terms of his high school production. So um, he's just a guy that there is a lot of question marks. And a lot of times when guys – Put up very low high school production marks and do really good at the college level. A lot of times, those are guys who actually play in those kind of spready systems that kind of inflate data. So I, high school production also kind of gives you an idea for whether or not a guy like the system he's playing in college, whether that's kind of inflating what they actually are. A lot of times, that's what high school data also gives you an idea on. But uh, and then of course you have Josh Allen. I mean, uh, Josh Allen. I, I I don't want to spend too much time on him. I've done multiple videos on him. I've been on multiple podcasts talking about Josh Allen. Uh, uh, based on all the data work I've done with him, his highest uh, college production score was about 26 out of 100. And that was the year that he was apparently good or great, or depending on who you talk to, uh, very low completion percentage. Uh, back to high school level was just kind of average in terms of his high school production. Didn't really hit the, long, the, uh, uh, the thresholds you need to hit in terms of high school production. And, though there is some potential that he could become a Jake DeLome or Josh McCallum type, because those were the only quarterbacks, you know, when I looked at the data back to 1958, the only quarterbacks that scored as low of a college production score as he did. And not only that, a career college production score, because his career college production score is only 20 out of a hundred. The only quarterbacks that actually went on to become successful ones who scored that low were guys like Jake DeLome, guys like Josh McCallum, mm-hmm. who, in many ways we're developmental quarterbacks. You know, Jake DeLonge was the drafted number one overall and took over a franchise and just became Jake DeLonge. He was a guy that went to NFL Europe. He's a guy who took some time to develop. Josh McAllen wasn't serviceable until he hit his 30s, you know. So I just feel like when it comes to Josh Allen, though I do think there is some nuggets of truth to the fact that he does have crazy arm talent and that there is – and he is a hard worker, and, you know, like, he's not... Like he's In terms of character, he's not a terrible guy in terms of character. I mean, he's a great guy in terms of character, you know. He has all the sort of intangibles that you're looking for at the position. But he's not really Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz was a guy who had much better high school production, and even college production, you know, during uh, his career, which was relatively short at the college level, but still pretty good. And, again, I just think when it comes to Josh Allen, there's just... he he looks like a project on film. He looks like it, like, I just don't understand what the disconnect is with Josh Allen, because on film, he looks like a project. Based on data, he looks like a project. Even <laughs> Brett Favre, who gets compared to a lot as well, is a guy that was a, that was actually better than him in, in college, in many ways, during his era at least. he was uh, Brett Favre actually was above average in many ways in terms of his college production. So um, he wasn't amazing, but he was above average. And, and Brett Favre is another guy that, what i think people forget he was a guy that was drafted by atlanta and atlanta got rid of him because they thought he was no good so uh you know like like that's not exactly what you want to take number one overall as a quarterback that even in brett Favre's case needed development needed some time to really uh you know get his his feet under him if you will in terms of his his talent so I just feel like with Josh Allen, you're you're taking a massive risk on a guy, and if you're picking really really high, like number one overall, top five, whatever, that's not a team that should be taking that type of risk. You know, so Josh Allen realistically is a guy that you take day two, day three, you know, day one if you really believe in his talent and you're and you have a team that already has a quarterback. You know, like you have Ben Roethlisberger or you have. Uh, you know Peyton Man, not Peyton Manning, but you know Tom Brady or something like that. Like that—that's the team that really should be taking a, a Josh Allen, not a team that needs a quarterback to win right now. Uh, and then the last quarterback, of course, I'll just get to is Lamar Jackson. Uh, based on his data, his only question mark realistically is—is is his high school production. Uh, his high school production was kind of uh, below average. Uh, his career has been kind of wishy-washy as well. Because his first year as a as a college player, uh, he was below average in terms of his overall production. Uh, and then second year. But the only thing I can really say about Lamar Jackson that gives me hope is that he got better in his second year, obviously. And even better in his third year, you know, as a junior. Uh, and I feel like with Lamar Jackson, there is that potential that he could go on to become an exception to the rule. Like, he he definitely could be that type of player ends up like a Cam Newton or Michael Vick or any of those other types of quarterbacks that we, that we talk about a lot, you know, that guy that kind of, because of his running ability, and because of just his ability to make plays, he can kind of make up for some of his inefficiencies as a passer. But at the same time, I just don't think he'll ever really be a tremendously efficient passer in his entire career. And, and for that reason would be kind of, you know, kind of overrated to a certain extent, but I do think there is a, I guess with Lamar Jackson, and even though all the data says that he's likely to be a failure, I still think that based on film and just based on my initial assessment of him and all you know, those other sort of factors, I still think that he has a shot to maybe become a long-term starter, maybe to become this type of franchise-type player. He just doesn't really hit the upside that you you wanted him to hit, I guess, You know, because he's not really going to become a Tom Brady type or a Peyton Manning type or a guy that's going to consistently get you – to the playoffs and consistently gets you to the Super Bowl. He's more so a guy that if you put the right team around him and, you know, you build from there, you might be able to get him to the Super Bowl once and you might even win the Super Bowl that one time. Or you might be like Cam Newton where stuff kind of falls apart, unfortunately, because of uh, not having the tackles to kind of block.
3: Uh, hey, Jim, this is Matthias. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about your personal process. Um, because when it comes to evaluating players, because I'm having a bit of a tough time myself with a couple, with a couple of players, and I'm just not sure how to exactly uh, balance the film and what I see with my eyes uh, when I watch a player. Um, and ha- how to balance that with athletic testing, uh, and, and metrics. You know, you know, um, either production-wise or athletic-wise. Um, I, I just want to know exactly like where you wh- where the fine line is, um, because there are a couple players that a lot of times fans, um. Want right now that I just when I see the film and when I see them play I'm just I'm just not sold on them at all uh, one of those players is Josh sweat sweat I know you have him uh, ranked pretty high in your big board uh, And there are other players that I'm not I'm not completely sold on on that that are even worth the, the 25th pick players like uh, Marcus Davenport or Malik Jefferson also um, So just tell us a little bit about how you how you draw that fine line between between the analytics and the film
1: well, I think in many ways it's 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 trying to find it's trying to find that balance, but it's also trying to figure out. A lot of times, uh, you know, as scouts in general, a lot of times, you know, we we tend to overlook things, we tend to overanalyze things, and there's even a bit of I want to say hubris at, at least, but there, there definitely is a sense of you know I know more than you know than everybody else in that sort of thing i I would say just say when it comes to the the balancing you know the types of players and the other sort of thing is that you know film in many ways at least how i treat what i do is i let the data form a big uh structure in terms of how i kind of rate guys but at the same time if a guy scores the same type of score like if he has the same sort of potential like if, if if uh if the player essentially like if there's Five players, like take the running backs in this class, for example. Um, There was five running backs in this class that put up Pro Bowl potential in terms of their production data, in terms of their their athleticism data. You know, guys like Saquon Barkley, Darius Geis, uh, Royce Freeman, uh, you know, even Sonny Michel, uh, you know, like the list goes on. Like there was a lot of running backs for Rashad Penny. There's a lot of running backs that put up sort of indicators where they pretty much hit everything you really need to be a Pro Bowl uh, running back. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you just rank them based on, you know, who scored the highest, uh, you know, production score or who scored the highest, uh, you know, athleticism score. You know, the, there there does tend to be a point where these players all score a similar score and then you just rank them based on, you know, your film and those other sort of factors. In terms of the big board that you're talking about, those other sort of things, that big board specifically is, was made purely based on, you know, the data or the metrics, you know. Um, uh, there definitely was a couple. Uh, I, I think the quarterback position was one of those where I didn't. Uh, that's the thing is like the wonderlick and age and those other sort of factors. Those are things that I kind of added to the quarterback because a lot of my quarterback process was just, you know, high school production, college production, hand size, age, and those other sort of factors. And I just put Darnold at, at one just because, of what I mentioned before is that he's a younger prospect and there's just a couple, like there's a couple little, there's a little things that kind of inch him above, I guess the pack, if that makes any sense. But in terms of the bulk of everybody on that board, it's realistically guys that have that potential, whether they have probable potential, starter potential, et cetera. But again, I see data as a way to, okay, these, this is what their potential is, you know, like based on the data, Trouble potential or long-term starter potential, et cetera, and then it's a matter of letting the film kind of guide you to go to that conclusion. So, for example, when it comes to the edge rushers in this class, Marcus Davenport, Josh Sweat, uh, you know Harold Landry, um, you know a lot of those guys scored better than Bradley Chubb, or at least Marcus Davenport kind of scored equally as well as Bradley Chubb. At the same time, as a guy that also watches the film and also kind of looks at you know, the data as well, because Bradley Chubb wasn't a joke either. You know, he was a guy that had really consistent production in terms of his overall career um, and a guy that tested well but had some question marks. But the reason why he's kind of lower is because of his, you know, agility testing in terms of the three count and those other sort of factors. But at the same time, on my own personal board, like if I'm actually drafting, I wouldn't take a Josh Sweat over (laughs) a Bradley Chubb. Uh, Or at least I wouldn't take a Marcus Davenport over a Bradley Chubb just because Marcus Davenport put up a better agility time when their agility times pretty much put them in the same sort of potential range, if that makes any sense. So um, I just feel like that's kind of what data does is just give you a perspective of, okay, this is what the potential outcomes are. Now Let's let the film decide who should be over who. You because know, again, when it comes to running backs, like I said before, you have five running backs who put up Pro Bowl potential and Pro Bowl athleticism traits. If you just did it by just straight numbers, you put like Rashad Penny over Saquon Barkley. And to be honest, I ain't gonna do that, guys. Like I've seen Rashad Penny's film. I like Penny's film, but I'm not gonna put Penny over Saquon Barkley. Like it just it's in terms of my own personal, um, you know, film rankings and stuff like that. Even though they are pretty much equal in terms of how they tested data-wise, so. I would say that's kind of my approach is I let the data kind of form the sort of like what the potential is and then let the film kind of decide how to rank those players in terms of the overall, you know, system, if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah. This is a uh, will Jim. That makes a ton of sense. The way I've tried to describe people to people and I use your numbers is this provides the ceiling of what they can be in an optimal scenario that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll all get there. You know, just because somebody has all-pro potential doesn't mean, you know, that he's going to get there. But um, talking about all-pro potential, there's not anybody that I can find on the defensive side of the ball that looks like they can hit that, you know, next level, that, you know, multi-time all-pro. Is there anybody you can see kind of surpassing where they've tested out?
1: Um. That's a good question. I, I, would, I would say that there definitely is a couple players where, because the biggest thing about defensive players is athleticism sometimes trumps everything. Um, you look at guys like Cameron Wake, uh, even Clay Matthews. You know Those were players that, in terms of their college production, uh, were not the best. They definitely were decent, but they weren't amazing. And, of course, they went on to be Cameron Wake and you know, Clay Matthews. Um, so, I would say guys like Josh Sweat, like that is kind of why Josh Sweat um, is rated so highly, is that even though when you watch the film, there's a lot to be desired, and even though there's a lot of other sort of factors there, he has the sort of athleticism traits uh, and at least produced enough because there definitely are some Barkevius Mingo types and uh, Deion Jordan types, uh, you know, that uh, were at least John Jordan, he didn't test that one in terms of explosive or body strength work, but like a guy like Barquevius Mingo, for example, a guy that tested tremendously, tremendous athlete in terms of Barquevius Mingo. His production was abysmal, you know, in terms of sack production, TFL production, et cetera. Um, There definitely is a chance that Josh Schwitt could be like a Barquevius Mingo type, but he at least produced a a little bit better than him, and again, there's just that sort of hope that you're kind of big on athleticism, and that goes with a lot of different positions, too, like Derwin James, Durin James, for example, is a safety that, in terms of his agility testing, didn't really test as well as he probably should have. But there definitely have been some cases of safeties. I think Keanu Neal is one of those guys, for example, who kind of you know went on to uh, you know to we still have yet to see the rest of his career, but definitely has you know had a pretty strong start to his career despite some agility sort of issues. Uh, I think other sort of players, Malik Jefferson, perhaps is, an, is another sort of guy where Malik Jefferson either could prove everybody wrong and go on to become a you know, Pro Bowl linebacker at the very least, or could end up being Jonathan Bostic, right? So, I mean, there's, you know, in some cases. So uh, I would say that there definitely is kind of that gap. Or Taven Bryan's probably another guy where um, athleticism-wise, he tested really well. Uh, production-wise, there are some question marks, but could still end up becoming – a a better player. So a lot of times when it comes to defensive side of the football, athleticism can be a crutch to a certain extent. You know, it can kind of get you above some of the issues you may have in production. If you test extremely well as an athlete, and I think a lot of that is because, you know, the defensive position is a lot of ball gets snapped, go tackle somebody, go hit somebody, right? You know, there's, um, there's not always a ton of thinking to that position, if that makes any sense. So, Um, sometimes you can kind of make up for that if they have really, really great athleticism traits.
0: Um, when you look at the edge rusher position, aside from Josh Sweat, you have probably three guys in Bradley Chubb, Harold Landry, and Marcus Davenport that are pretty much going to be guaranteed first round picks. So aside from Chubb, who we know is likely (coughs) gone top five, maybe top 10, um, Who do you think would be a a good fit for a defense that the Titans run, which is a 3-4 based on on speed and aggression? How do you feel like a Davenport or a Landry or even someone sort of off the radar like a – we talk a lot about Sam Hubbard, uh, Josh Sweat even, Hercules Mata'afa. Who do you feel like would be maybe the best fit that's actually attainable for the Titans?
1: Right, and attainability is definitely – definitely a a big it's a a big sort of question because I I have no clue, you know, Harold Landry is a guy that I know that has been going late first now you hear rumors that he's going top 15, and it doesn't actually surprise me that much that he would be going top 15 you know, based on his film at least not last year, but the year before that um, etc, and also the way that he tested at the Combine, so uh, Landry honestly would be the best fit, you know, he kind of has that uh, I don't want to say prototypical size. Like he's not exactly six foot four and two hundred and fifty-five pounds, but he definitely is that sort of kind of little bit undersized type. Uh, but it's tough, tough against the run. Uh, a pretty good pass rusher, at least based on the film in 2016, 2017. He was dealing with a lot of injuries and stuff like that um, that kind of you know limited him. But he definitely would be a a good fit in terms of that system. In terms of Marcus Davenport, I. I mean, if you go to the Senior Bowl, I know he gets a lot of... Because that's the thing. I, I don't I want to say all the hate from Marcus Davenport was because of the Senior Bowl. But a lot of it was just because he, he went to the Senior Bowl the first couple of days and really didn't do much of anything. And people were like, this is a guy going into this Senior Bowl where people were saying he was a top-ten overall pick. And he, he has yet to really get a rush on anybody, you know, or at least get some pressure on anybody. And then, of course, he finished it out pretty well and, of course, had a, you know, a couple sacks in the actual game. Uh, with him, I... I really don't know hundred percent because a lot of the film I see of him, he definitely is very raw. Based on his testing, those other sort of factors, he looked kind of Jason pierre Polish, who was another guy that was super raw, obviously, but had, you know, good athleticism traits, enough production to say that he could become something. And of course, had crazy length and crazy, you know, other sort of factors, which is kind of why people love Davenport. At least, you know, NFL scouts like Davenport a lot because of the size of the other factors. So. Although I do think Davenport is not a guarantee to be Jason Pierre-Paul or even something good, I do like the film enough and think there's enough potential-wise with him that when it comes to Tennessee, he would be a pretty, you know, sort of good fit for them if he gets with the right coach and stuff like that. And I think a guy like you know, because your head coach is Mike Vrabel, um, I'm not saying he's Mike Vrabel. I mean, he's much more athletic than Mike Vrabel was coming out, but I do think there's a lot of tools. You know, he's a very toolsy guy. And I think Bravil could definitely, even though he is the head coach, I, de- I think he definitely could like get you know push him in the right direction, I guess, into becoming um, at least a, a pretty productive player. Um, another guy, Ubanio, you know, Okarankwo, yeah. you know, more of a guy maybe day two. I mean, based on you know, like he definitely could sneak in late first, uh, you know, definitely based on his testing at the Oklahoma uh, Pro Day. But um, but he's another guy too where he tested pretty well in terms of production. Uh, one of the better, you know, productive guys in terms of the class, but and also testing wise, didn't test that badly. I mean, now he wasn't amazing, but at the same time, he he was explosive, he was flexible. When you look at the film, um, he is a guy that is explosive, is flexible, um, can kind of drop back as well in coverage. You know, play a little bit of coverage. Now he's not, again, he's not like coverage linebacker per se, but he definitely at least does enough to kind of you know guard the perimeter. Uh, But he is another guy that I think, if you're talking about like a 3-4 type scheme, he definitely would kind of fit the bill in terms of that. If you want to take a crazy, I don't want to say jump off a cliff, but if you want to take something in day three or day two, like in that sort of area where, and you're you're banking a lot on upside of physical potential, you know, you have Kamiko Ture from Rutgers um, who tested really well as an athlete but production-wise, a lot to be desired. You know, a lot to be desired based on production. Definitely kind of had a better draft process than actual play on film, I guess is the best way to put it. But he's another guy that kind of has all the other, other sort of stuff you're looking for. In terms of Sam Hubbard, my only issues with Sam Hubbard is is that he's had, he's had significantly below average production in his entire career at, at Ohio State. He, he basically was in the 30... Basically, if you're talking about out of a score of 100, he was in the 30s in solo tackle, sack, TFL. Uh, he's really just was more so like a rotational guy for the most part there. And testing-wise, he did test well in terms of explosiveness. He did test well in terms of flexibility. But and honestly, he looks kind of identical to Mike Vrabel. The only difference is that Mike Vrabel was a guy that put up 90 plus percentile production when he was at Ohio State, whereas Hubbard is a guy that again put up 30 percentile you know, production. So I do understand the sort of hype with Hubbard in that has a sort of physical size traits you're looking for, he is explosive. He is flexible. He is coming from a big time program, obviously in Ohio state, but I would say he's one of the riskier prospects you could imagine when you're talking about taking a guy, you know, late day one or even day two.
0: What do you think about yeah. real quick? Uh, Lorenzo Carter from Georgia. Um, Carter, I'm not gonna say he scares me,
1: uh, but uh, he he definitely is a guy uh, super explosive, super fast. Based on testing, uh, film wise, he the one thing I loved on film with him is just his his pursuit ability. He was a guy that could go from uh, the left side of the field to the right side of the field and make a tackle on the sideline, uh, which is you know starting at the line of scrimmage. So he has to fight through trash, he has to fight through lineman he has to fight like he has to fight through a bunch of stuff to get that play to make that play so he definitely is a guy that has at least good spatial awareness but his production has never really been that great Uh, he didn't really do any agility testing at the combine or the pro day which I just whenever whenever an edge rusher doesn't do, do like the three cone and the short shell and those other sort of things and sometimes they have a legit reason maybe they are injured or they have some kind of thing but a lot of times when they don't do that I just I, I tend to avoid those types of players because, and it's not, and it is something that kind of showed up with Carter a little bit on film. Was just a little bit of, uh, you know, stiffness with him. He's definitely explosive. He's definitely fast, but I just think you're looking at a raw project type when you're when you're talking about Lorenzo Carter. He definitely is a great athlete in terms of explosion and speed, but I think you honestly would be better served taking a guy who's a little bit more productive has a little bit more of a balance in terms of... Like, you know what you're going to get. With Carter, you don't really know 100% what you're going to get, which makes him kind of risky to take as a day one or day two prospect.
3: Yeah. Uh, before my next question, I just want to talk a little bit about Sam Hubbard. Uh, the reason... Um, that, he's just not a good football player, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, but I just, wa- just want to say that. I have no idea why people want him at 25 for the Titans. I mean, it, when you really put it all together his production was was rather subpar um, he ran like a 4.95 40 yard dash so I, I am not surprised to see him very low on that big board of yours um, so yeah I just want to throw that in there um, <laughs> but
2: for uh, pass rushers it's like he's big and he's yeah. really high in the three cone, so everybody's losing their mind but uh, the film does not equate to what a good pass rusher should look like but go on with <laughs>
3: Anyway, yeah, I just need to get a little dig in, but I'm done now. Um, let's move on to the inside linebackers now, because edge and inside linebackers seem to be the two biggest needs uh, for the Titans. And there are good players, I would say, uh, good potential athletes, at least, in this in this draft at both positions, uh, in my opinion. But a lot of these prospects are I, – I don't know if they're flawed, but they definitely have risks that come with them. Um It's particularly at inside linebacker. There's players like Malik Jefferson that are that who's a really good athlete, but doesn't doesn't really show up on film as much as you'd like. Um, And then there are players like uh, Rashawn Evans, who is not not a very good athlete, uh, but he's always making plays on film. Um, So what inside linebackers do you like uh, and which 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 ones do you think fit a defense like the Titans, which is presumably going to be a three, four? Right.
1: Uh, and, and that's actually an interesting sort of question, because uh, when I actually looked at the differences between 4-3 uh, three, and 3-4 three, inside linebackers in terms of the average weight, there's really only about a five-pound difference. Like Usually 4-3 linebackers are a little bit, uh, you know, about 230 pounds is kind of the average weight, whereas 3-4 inside linebackers are more 235. So I, I do understand there's this sort of idea of like well the inside linebackers need to be 250 pounds and this and that but I mean when you look at the averages and you look at all the you know the data basically it, it's not really the case but yeah in terms of inside linebackers in this class I would I'll say this much there is a lot of really really productive linebackers in this draft class like that's the strength of the class when you're talking about production data. Because you had guys that scored 90-plus percentile in terms of their production data. You, you of course, have broke who uh, Everybody's familiar with out of Georgia. Trayman Edmonds, you know, from Virginia Tech, scored 90-plus percentile. Uh, Leighton Van Ash, you know, from Boise State, 90-plus percentile. Right. Leek Jefferson, Micah Kaiser, uh, Christian Sam. Uh, you know, the list kind of goes on in terms of guys that just scored ridiculously high uh, – you know, production at the, the position, but there's also the sort of linebacker athleticism question marks with a couple. Like I, I do kind of agree that, you know, when I did all the linebacker data work, you know, in terms of all the linebackers in the class, none of them put up a perfect score. Some of them, it was because of missing information, you know, guys that didn't do the short shoulder three cone at the pro day or the combine. Um, some of them put up explosion scores that were a little questionable um, for example, like Roquan Smith. For example, when he actually did his explosion testing at Georgia, he didn't hit the Pro Bowl or All-Pro explosion score after after doing all that stuff. So he definitely hit a a really really good speed score, obviously, but his explosion score wasn't exactly where it needed to be. But honestly, when it comes to the again the three four inside linebacker types, uh, I mean it's it's really tough to say who would be a better fit. I mean, definitely treatment Edmonds, you who may go top 10. I mean, you know, again, I, I have no clue, you know, like he's a guy that definitely tested really well. uh, And, but he's really young though. I mean, and some people say, well, that's a good thing, but it it can be, you know, if you're talking about a guy that's 20 years old, um, you know, he can't really get a drink yet, obviously. So uh, legally anyway, so like you have sort of question marks in terms of a guy like that. Leighton Vander Esch is a guy that definitely put up Luke Kuechly-like athleticism traits. And I think people are kind of getting a little too wild with that. You know, they're like, oh, he tested, he looks like Luke Kuechly. He tested like Luke Kuechly. But he, you know, this is a guy that only started one year of, uh, you know, at least in terms of having a full season worth of production. So there definitely is question marks from that perspective with him, Um, even though he tested well as an athlete and definitely was really productive. Uh, of course, you have Link Jefferson, who I do agree on film is really inconsistent. He's a guy that he might, you know, square up a guy really well and, and solo tackle really well in space, or at the same time, whiff horribly, or you not, no, not really know how to, you know, shed and disengage as, as well as you want a guy like him to do, especially for his athleticism. So, um, you know, and then of course you have a guy like Rashawn Evans, who, and I do like Rashawn Evans. In terms of film, but he's a guy who has, has question marks just from the fact of not really being the most productive guy. Testing wise, he tested a little bit more like Jolan Dunbar as a athlete, so kind of a long term starter versus a Pro Bowl or all pro type. And not only that, he's a, a guy who's also kind of new to the position as well. You know, this is a guy that originally at Alabama uh, was slated to be an edge rusher, and then he kind of transitioned him to linebacker. So, you know, he was a guy that. Uh, You know, doesn't have a ton of experiences as as far as being an inside linebacker, and the and the reason why people love him is because he brings that kind of physicality that an edge rusher is supposed to bring at the linebacker position. But at the same time, he doesn't quite do like there's just a lack of like a again when I when I talk about watching a, a linebacker on film. I'm not saying that the guy lacks instincts. Is not really what I'm saying. It, every player has instincts. Every player watches film and kind of, you know, takes that data and go. And, you know, they take all that information that they've studied in the week and then put it in the game. But he definitely is a guy who's like a half a step, two plays a lot of times, um, just because he's a guy who kind of lacks that experience uh, to a certain extent. Uh, but I mean, there. And of course, you have Micah Kaiser, he's more of a day two guy. But he's a guy I really do like on film as well, kind of a solid all-around player people don't talk a lot about because he plays at Virginia. Uh, Christian Sam is another linebacker that I, I'm a pretty big fan of. Saquon Griffin, although he is missing a hand, and I do understand that as a data guy, I should not like this guy because I can just tell you that there's never been a long-term starting linebacker who missed a hand. You know, he didn't have a hand. But tested really well as an athlete. Really, you know, not great production, but good production for at least the position he was playing. And when you look at him as an edge rusher, he was tremendous at the position. Uh, he might be a little undersized in terms of a 3-4 inside linebacker, but he's just a tough, you know, S.O. I mean, he's SOB. You know, like he, he just has a sort of mentality that wherever you put him, he's going to be... He's go. like Griffin is that guy that I know. It might be like too like I don't want to say Make a Wish Foundation or whatever, but like I don't really think it's that because he's a great athlete. He was productive. He rushes the passer really well. He can make plays in coverage. He just happens to not have a hand. So, you know, you have to. <laughs> and and some people that rubs people the wrong way. But at the same time, I just feel like, you know, it, it kind of reminds me a lot of a guy like Russell Wilson or other, other types of players where everything said to draft after this guy, at least with Russell Wilson's case. He was a guy that, based on his production, was tremendous. He, you know, tested well as an athlete. He pretty much hit all the wonderlicks, even though people don't believe in the wonderlicks, but he did put up a pretty decent wonderlicks score, had the hand size, had all the stuff you're looking for, of course, had kind of a... Uh, his personality was very much crazy leadership, you know, like everybody in that draft class. I don't care who they are. Even the ones that had, like, a day-three grade on them said that he was, you know, he was probably end up being a coach one day. And who knows, Russell Wilson might end up being a coach somewhere when he, when he finally gets on playing. But everything was saying to draft this guy, except for the fact that he was 5'11". You know, he was, he was short. And I think that's the thing with Saquon Griffin, is that everything from film to production to athleticism traits says this is going to be a good NFL football player, the exception of the fact that he only has one hand. And I think when you have players like that, and it's such a – random kind of eh, like if he's going to fail us because he only has one hand really you know like I just I just kind of side with the uh, don't overthink things too much you know when it comes to the guy I like him
2: yeah Shaquem Griffin somebody I've thought for a long time was you know I said okay you know the Titans are going to draft him in the third round they're going to use him like uh, you know the Patriots used Jamie Collins in the past and then you look at his height and weight and that's the only thing that gives me any sort of hesitation is he's just not as big. And I I don't, I don't know if they'll feel comfortable doing that, especially after the linebackers like uh, McKinney that Vrabel had when he was with Houston. So as much as I want him in the third round and they may get him because he's everything John Robinson loves, but if they do, it'll be more because they believe he can be a playmaker and that kind of hybrid role, uh, rather than, you know, that's Vrabel's prototype. Somebody that uh, I keep seeing a lot uh, in, in terms of going on visits is Justin Reed, who's the safety from Stanford. And the Titans had him in for a visit, and for a while I couldn't figure out what the Titans are doing. But it looks like they're trying to find guys in the second round that they can trade down out of the first if those edge rushers aren't there, trade down, get maybe a second or a third pick, and then, you know, just go after value at those positions. There, he's somebody I think could be a sneaky candidate for the first person the Titans take if they trade down. I, I know you like him a lot. What do you see when you see Justin Reed?
1: Well, I see a very solid all-around free safety type. Uh, I think, and because that's the thing, my the, the best strong safety in this class to me is Duron James, the best free safety, which. Becomes a bigger debate, if you will, you know, because you need throwing guys like Godwin at Northwestern, where you throw in like Tavares Tavares Moore, for example, at Southern Miss. But the guy that realistically, you know, played at a big-time program at Stanford, put up very good athleticism traits in terms of speed and flexibility. You know, he's coming from Eric Reed. Eric Reed was a guy that blew up the combine as well. You know, ended up going in the first round. Uh, and production-wise pretty solid all-around production. Now, the only sort of question marks I have with him production-wise is that he definitely was really good in terms of the production. You know, very good solo tackle, very good interception. very You know, above average solo tackle, above average interception, above average pass deflection data. But no, nothing was elite. Like, he wasn't elite in terms of solo tackle data. He wasn't elite in terms of interceptions or wasn't elite in terms of uh, pass flexions. And a lot of times the great safeties were elite in at least one category. Like, Torrey Palomala was a 99-plus percentile solo tackle guy when he was at USC. Like, everywhere the ball was, he was there. And that's kind of similar to what his NFL career was. Earl Thomas, Ed Reed were guys that were 90-plus percentile in terms of interceptions,
3: uh,
1: you know, or in pass inflections as well. So, like, Reed is definitely a guy that I I see more as a long-term starter than a pro bowler. Like, there definitely is that chance he could be, be, like, a fringe Pro, you know, pro type, but I just think he's that guy that yeah, he, his upside may not be like he may be kind of Eric, and I don't want really to compare him to Eric Reed, you know, his brother. But his brother was very much a great athlete who had similar sort of issue where his production was good, but it wasn't amazing. But at the same time, he still went on to become a pretty good safety at the next level, you know, uh, you know, at least a starting safety. So I feel like that's the thing with Justin Reed is you know when you look at his film, pretty solid all around field, pretty pretty good ball skills, pretty good instincts for the position. May not ever be an elite. You know, like I don't really think he's going to be Kevin Bayard or anything like that, uh, who was another guy that was a tremendous athlete uh, yeah. as well. But I do think that Reed has a chance to be a long term starter. And I think, and again, when I say long term starter, a lot of people go, oh, well, you're, you're saying he's bad. No, I'm not. Only 10% of most players in any given draft class end up becoming long term starters. So I'm saying he's going to be a 10%er. I'm saying he's going to make it, guys. So like I feel like with Reed, uh, he's a guy that has a very good shot to make it, so to speak, and become, you know, integral part of a defense. I just don't think he's ever really going to, you know, be elite or, you know, whatever you want to call it, like a Hall of Fame or anything like that. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just, you know, it's why he's kind of going day two or late day one, you know, it's kind of that reason, I think, where why people kind of have him in that spot.
0: Um, Jim, as we kind of close out, I have two sort of uh, almost draft philosophy questions to ask you because I know you're a guy, because of the kind of work you do, you do a lot of thinking about, you know, are we overrating this? Are we underrating, you know, this stat or this drill or this, you know, whatever. And so first I want to ask you about just the running back position in general because, you know, obviously Saquon Barkley is an extraordinary talent. And people are thinking that he's probably gone in the top five unless there's a major rush on quarterbacks that maybe we're not expecting. So I want to get your opinion because, you know, in the modern NFL, I personally don't believe there's that much of a drop-off in Saquon Barkley accounting for 2,000 scrimmage yards and Deion Lewis and Derrick Henry combining for 2,000 scrimmage yards or A carry-on Johnson running for 1,200 yards and being complimented by someone, you know, a receiving back. So what do you think just kind of, I guess, in the modern NFL is the value of a true bell cow running back like Saquon Barkley, like Darius Geis is going to probably become, versus someone like, you know, what the Chicago Bears have in, they found a couple of late mid-round gems in Jordan Howard and Tariq Cohen. How do you sort of, where do you stand on that issue? Well, it's it's a very interesting issue, Um, and it's an issue that
1: spans a very very long time. And 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 there actually was a and I forgot the name of the article, but there was a there was actually a a guy who did a lot of data work as well as me who did an article about a decade ago about the Giants and the Bills uh, Super Bowl. You know, with uh, you know Whitney Houston you know uh, was uh, singing the national anthem that one, Uh, and and. Bill Belichick, of course, was a, was a defensive coordinator there, and also Tom Coughlin was also there as well. And uh, it was one of those games where they let them run the football. Like, you're not, it, we're not going to let you pass on us. You're going to have to run the football. Uh, and the reason why is because a lot of data at that time was showing that running the football was not the most – like, it definitely matters. Like, you, you don't want to be terrible at running the football, but unless you have Peyton Manning, you know. But – but running the football is not exactly the when it comes to winning football games, you know, being successful, you don't really need to have a elite running game. You do need to have an elite passing game and just number wise, just to kind of throw out numbers because, you know, that's kind of what I do uh, you, when it comes to getting first downs on first down, second down, third down, etc., Most teams that win 12 or more games. So we're talking about, Teams that are, you know, getting first-round buys, uh, you know, those teams, teams that are winning 12 mm-hmm. wins or more, you know, on average, those teams, when it comes to their running game, they're they're averaging about 53.18 out of 100 in terms of their first-down efficiency. So they're dead on average when it comes to their ability to get first downs on first down, second down, and even third down in many in many respects when it comes to the running game. But when it comes to their passing game, they're 72.82 in terms of, you know, first down conversion rate. They're, they're 69.90 in terms of second down. So there is this sort of, like, the the only value that I really see, and this is just not me as a data guy per se, but just as a strategic guy, is the only the only value that a running back gives you that can run the football and can catch out of the backfield, like a a true all-purpose running back, you know, a Marshall Falk, a Le'Veon Bell, those types of guys. The only real value that those guys really bring is you don't have to, you're not alerting the defense to what you're doing, you know, in many ways when you have a running back like that. You know, because if you if you bring in a back who's really good at rushing the football, that entire defense knows exactly what you're going to do. Like, they have a better idea. Like, okay, they got, got Jeremy Hill back there. Obviously, they're not going to pass, right? Mm-hmm. They have Jeremy Hill. Like, Jeremy Hill, come on. Uh, and then you get your pass catching back out there, and they go, "Oh, we know exactly what they're going to do now." Like because of you know whatever the role is. So yeah. although I do believe in running back by committee, and I do think that you can cobble together a running back group, which is what a lot of NFL teams do, and and I just I just find it as a different strategy to to winning. You know, like it's I wouldn't say it's more efficient per se than any other strategy. At least I haven't really done a ton of, like, actual data research into that, you know, looking at running back by committee versus other sort of positions in terms of actual run output or passing output. But yeah. all that I can really say is, just from a strategic standpoint, it just... It doesn't take away the strategy, of course, because you're definitely going to have... You know, you might do a trick play, right? You might have Jeremy Hill do a passing play, right? You might have him catch the ball of the backfield or something, like, like yeah. as a trick. But... Uh, but for the most part, I do think it kind of limits your ability to have that sort of versatility, I guess. When you have, when you only have one back who can do everything, I do think it opens up your ability to kind of trick defenses and kind of get them off guard, I guess.
0: Last question before we let you go, and this one I, I hope will be fun for you to think about. Um, when you look back on the last decade, so I guess we're in 2018, so this goes back to the 2008 NFL Draft, who is someone that... Maybe not busted, but maybe it was just very underwhelming in their career that that really shocked and surprised you that you totally were expecting to succeed and be a, a Pro Bowl kind of player.
1: Hmm. <laughs>
0: yeah, that actually is a pretty uh,
1: interesting question. Uh in terms of you know guys that kind of shocked uh, in terms of just their, you know, not becoming a uh uh, a probable player. I honestly think it would be the the linebacker uh Aaron Curry hmm. that the uh the Seahawks mm-hmm. uh drafted. Um he was a guy that now he was a little bit older uh in terms of his overall age, but there also have been other linebackers that were at the same age. So like it's, it's it's he's one of those guys where you can't really find a reason as to why um he busted, I guess is the best way to put it. Um he didn't put up the the greatest short shuttle ever. But at the same time, Navarro Bowman didn't put up the best short show ever. You know, like there's there's lots of other linebackers uh, that tested very similar to him in terms of being explosive speed athletes who didn't test so well in terms of agility, who still kind of went on to become um, successful players. His production wasn't really that uh, bad. You know, like he wasn't a guy who was just not productive. Obviously, so I would say Aaron Curry is definitely one of those guys that obviously very very high draft pick uh, for the Seahawks and just didn't quite, you know, didn't quite go on to even become like a multiple Pro Bowl type. You know, he was a guy that was on the Seahawks for a minute, got injured a bit, went to the Raiders, and then he was pretty much done in terms of his career. Um, so I would say definitely Aaron Curry, just because he, he kind of hit every single metric you're looking for, uh, but just didn't quite pan out at the NFL level.
0: Jim, we really appreciate the time. Uh, Before you head out, let everyone know how they can buy your draft guide and where they can watch your your YouTube videos.
1: Uh, Sure. Uh, Well, you can buy my draft guide at uh, Amazon.com. You can type in uh, 2018 NFL Draft Analytics Guide. So, again, make sure you put analytics. So uh, I'm not going to spell it analytics. But if you put analytics in, it'll come up. If you put NFL Draft Guide, you'll have a ton of different options to choose from, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but if you just put in uh, 2018 NFL Draft Analytics Guide in Amazon.com, you can also follow me on Twitter at Geometrics, And I have the link to my guide pinned to my Twitter account. So you can just go follow me at Geometrics, J-I-M-E-T-R-I-C-S. And the uh, the link to the guide is, is attached to my Twitter account. And you can also check out the Common Man Football Show on YouTube. Uh, where for the rest of the week up to this point, I'm going to, assume to be doing top five uh, positional uh, videos and going into the analytics about it. So, like these are the top five quarterbacks based on the analytics running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, you know, et cetera. In fact, I've already done uh, the top five quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, and offense and offensive tackles specifically. So, um, if you really are into kind of analytics and kind of getting an idea of who were the guys that kind of tested the best, Based on data in this class, I would highly recommend you check out uh, the YouTube channel as well and all the videos that are going to be coming out um, up to the draft and, of course, after the draft as well. Thanks so much, Jim. Absolutely, and thanks for having me on, guys.
0: Everyone absolutely needs to go follow Jim by his draft guide. His stuff is is among the best of, of anybody who does uh, draft analysis because, I mean, he knows what he's talking about more than a lot of people do. Um one more reminder: next Tuesday, seven PM Central Time on Blog Talk Radio, the three of us will be going live for a mock draft of the entire first round, not just the Titans' pick. Uh, we're going to go through every pick, talk about all the players that we pick. Uh, we're going to be alternating uh, back and forth, so it's kind of it's going to be kind of like a real draft. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, phone lines will be open, so you can call into the show and talk to us. It's just going to be a lot of fun. So again, that's that's Tuesday, uh, April 24th, 7 p.m. on Blog Talk Radio. There will be an actual link to that on the Titan-Sized Twitter, at Titan underscore sized. Until then, the three of us are signing off for now. For Matthias Wadner and Will Lomas, I'm Luke Worsham. Thank you for listening to the Titan-Sized Podcast. We will talk to everybody on Tuesday. Disney's Aladdin is inviting you to celebrate 10 years of Broadway magic. Step into a whole new
1: world filled with vibrant colors, endless glitz and glamour, and show-stopping visual spectacle. With dazzling singing and dancing, a love story for the ages, and a magic carpet, what more could you wish for? Come celebrate a decade of Broadway magic at the New Amsterdam Theater, New York's most magical destination. Get tickets today at aladdinthemusical.com.